Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, and today we're very fortunate to be joined by Paul Kier, professor at Copenhagen Business School, CBS, whose research focuses on European and global governance and political economy. Professor Kier specializes in legal theory and historical sociology, and directed the European Research Council's project Institutional Transformation in European Political Economy from 2013 to 2017. He's also been a visiting fellow at the Paris Institute for Advanced Study, the London School of Economics, and Harvard University. He's also authored and edited a number of books on global governance and law, including his most recent, The Law of Political Economy. Transformation and the Function of Law, Cambridge University Press, 2020. This edited volume outlines and further develops the law of political economy as a relatively new field with nuanced contributions from legal scholars covering historical transformations and contentious focal points within the specialties of consumer protection law, competition, as well as labor and environmental law within both European and global contexts. Professor Kier, Paul, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Paul, before we talk about the new book, um, could you share a bit about how you came to the study of governance and the law of political economy? Sure. Um, I'm one of the relatively few academics, I believe, who have I've been so fortunate to actually work out in the real world outside university. I worked for some years in Brussels before I started my PhD, and it was very much in this Brussels atmosphere, in the European institutions and in the broader European affairs settings, that I kind of came to the area of governance and political economy. And one of the things which struck me very clearly when I was a young, just graduated uh, guy at that time, what struck me was very much that most of the models, most of the theories, uh, the methods I had learned at university were obviously not corresponding to how the real world operates. So there was kind of a, a tension in what I, between what I had learned and what I could observe in practice. And that's actually where my interests in, for these areas emerged. And that's also why what I'm doing now is very much, uh, even though it's quite theoretical what I do, it is also very praxis-oriented rather than model-oriented. Most of economics, most of political science relies on formal modeling. And what I do is far more derived directly from praxis in a different way. So it's very much this praxis orientation and background which kind of in me and guided me into this area of, of academic interest. Why you chose to be at a business school? Yes, well, first of all, CBS is actually not a business school in a traditional sense. If you look at the American business schools, for example, they tend to have a very narrow kind of uh, focus doing business in the narrow sense. CBS is more like a 
business university, or you might even say at social science university in the same sense as, for example, London School of Economics is not just doing economics, they're doing a broader range of areas. But you're completely right that there is a specific take at CBS and at Copenhagen Business School on how you approach praxis and reality in contrast to how you do it in more traditional university settings. It is always, all, although we have a tremendously lot of like strongly theoretical work going on here, there is anyone both from formal economics, but also to post-structuralism and Derrida and Luhmann and Habermas and all sorts of stuff in that direction. It's always with a praxis orientation. And that actually, I think, is a, a big, big strength and it makes it far more interesting than being in a, sort of say, regular university setting. Let me ask you, how would you characterize the difference between the law of political economy as understood in Copenhagen or at CBS with law in political economy in New Haven? In New Haven, that's Yale University. I think the Law and Political Economy Project uh, at Yale uh, Law School, which is quite famous and a lot of things are going on there, I think in, in their initial kind of manifest, they describe themselves as a uh, put in place to challenge market fundamentalism. And with that, I think also they make it quite clear, quite bluntly clear, actually, that what they are unfolding is a political and ideological project. Uh, it's very much a kind of project that sees itself as part of a hegemonic battle of ideas. And what they are pursuing is very much a, a political agenda, if you wish. In contrast, I think what we do here in Copenhagen, or the Copenhagen School, if you want to call it that, is somewhat more distant and analytical, and if you want to say so, maybe a less emotional and less ideological than what takes place at Yale. That is, there is, at least in my work, a clear idea that scholars actually see better and understand things better if they take a more distant, analytical approach rather than getting too engaged in normative battles. Um, and I think that does not mean that the, the normative position is not relevant or important, but in all, one has to, sort of say, dose it quite carefully and not um, engage too directly into an all-right normative battle. And I think that's one of the... It's a, so in that sense, there is a difference in approach, but also in temperament and in, in the way you kind of... Uh, sees your role as a scholar uh, uh, where in continental Europe in general, but also here in Copenhagen, you will have a less politicized form of uh, law and political economy scholarship than you do in New Haven, uh, I think. One of the consequences of that is, for example, that um, I don't really subscribe to the concept of capitalism. That is uh, because the problem now with the field of law and political economy is that basically it's a ideological battleground between those who either are pro-capitalism or contra-capitalism. And I don't really think this sort of distinctions are very helpful for developing sophisticated, subtle um, insights of an academic nature. You actually want to uh, get beyond that kind of antagonistic uh, standpoints uh, in order to get down in the real deeper materia lying beneath, so to say. And uh, if I were to um, issue a small criticism of my New Haven colleagues, I would say they don't really get down to that deeper level. It, it stays as a surface battle at the ideological level. And I don't think that's really helpful for scholarship. 
Well, thanks for that, uh, for sharing that. Um, on their blog or on their website, the Law and Political Economy Group in, in the States or at Yale say they had their origins in a, in a seminar, uh, Law and Political Economy at Yale Law School, spring of 2017. They had an initial topic, and it was theoretical foundations, market societies, and the embedded economy. The required readings included selections from Polanyi's uh, The Great Transformation and Fred Bloch's 2008 paper, Polanyi's Double Movement, and the Reconstruction of Critical Theory. If you had a seminar professor at CBS next fall, say, called The Law of Political Economy, what would you assign as foundational reads? Well, First of all, actually, my students in this coming autumn will actually be reading the very same text uh, from Polanyi. So uh, in that sense, uh, I'm on the same line as, uh, as Yale on this one. But what we are doing in, at CBS, what I'm doing in my uh, teaching here is you always complement it with a counter position, so to say. And in this case, the most obvious and classical counter position to Polanyi is Hayek which actually Hayek wrote his book, The Road to Serfdom, in 1944, which is exactly the same year as Polanyi published The Great Transformation. It posed the same question, or had the same interest, namely the question, why did totalitarianism emerge, and why was it so successful? Um, that is National Socialism and Communism, especially Stalinism, etc. The interesting thing is, however, that they gave completely opposite answers to the same question, because for Polanyi, the idea was that the economy had become too detached from the rest of society and that undermined sort of the integrity of society and politics and so on and led to totalitarianism. For Hayek, Hayek, it was the other way around. He said, no, it's because there has been too much political interference in the economy that we ended up with totalitarianism. So my point would be always in such kind of seminars to, to put up the two counter positions, so to say, and not take a one-sided, so to say, perspective. It's always important to to show that there's different ways of looking at the same problem. In addition, I would add some uh, in-between positions, because Hayek and Polanyi is like outliers on a continuum. If you're talking in an ideological sense, you could say from a center-right perspective, you also have the ordo-liberal school associated with um, scholars such as uh, Walter Eugen and Franz Böhm. And if you take a center-left position, you have what is essentially a social democratic position associated with people like Hermann Heller, Hugo Sinsheimer, Otto Kahn Freund and Franz Leopold Neumann. And these are kind of people, neither of these are as extreme as Hayek or as Polanyi, but are rather lying in the middle. And I would actually try to show the full continuum of position, positions you have out there, rather than taking only one position and pushing that ahead. And I think it's very illustrative of the, the uh, Yale Law School political economy group that they take one position and pushing that one instead of like trying to show what is the full continuum in place here? Do you feel like if that seminar at Yale was the point of origin for for that group, is there a point of origin, would you say, like an academic conference or a seminar for the law of political economy as a, I don't know, a movement or a field of study as, as you understand it from Copenhagen? Well, actually, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, uh, I was directing a, a major European Research Council project here, um, here in Copenhagen for some years, from 17 onward, 2017 onwards, um, until 2017, sorry. Um, and in that project, we actually had seven conferences taking place here in, in Copenhagen. And the one which led to the book that we are talking about today, or will be talking about today, is also 
a book which came out of a conference. So actually that series of conferences we had here in Copenhagen, which I organized together with colleagues, is very much where we had sort of say the foundational kind of process leading to the establishment of the framework we are working with now. Speaking of readings, in 2014, you had a book called Constitutionalism in the Global Realm, a sociological approach, um, and that was followed by the evolution of intermediary institutions in Europe from corporatism to governance that you co-authored with Eva Hartman, and, and then uh, Critical Theories of Crisis in Europe from Weimar to the Euro with uh, Nicholas uh, Olson in 2016. Can, can you share a bit about those books uh, in, in terms of influences and, and how they fit into this picture? Yes, I mean, the books uh, you mentioned are definitely connected. They are a part of a, a bigger project, if you wish so, or like kind of a, uh, and they have a common direction. Actually, there is also another book, my first book, which you did not mention, Between Governing and Governance from 2010. And in that book, I very much try to develop, if you wish, a new approach to European integration and for understanding the European Union, especially its evolution. Um, and that was very much derived from my work, practical work experiences in Brussels before I did my PhD. The constitution, uh, constitutionalism in the global realm, on a, on a, in contrast, was very much about global affairs and about how global institutions, both private and public, gets constitutionalized and how they kind of get a kind of institutional legal framing which enables them to operate and get stabilized. So we have first book was actually on European affairs, second on global affairs. And that's a kind of this duality which I have followed ever since because I I tend to do both, both make a specific European perspective, that's where I'm from, Europe, but also a global perspective. And you also see that in the new book, the one we are talking about today, The Law of Political Economy, that it's sort of say half global affairs and half European affairs, which are compromised in the book, so to say. The evolution of intermediary institutions is actually, in many ways, the, the starting book for the project I, I did, because it lays, lays out a theory of how intermediary institutions have evolved from interwar corporatism to post-World War II neo-corporatism to what we today call governance, and especially what is the role of law and the kind of, uh, of normativity and of institutions in these three types of intermediary setups, and intermediary setups between politics and economy, especially. How is economy and, uh, and politics interacting, and how are, their, how are their interaction regulated by law? And the point is, of course, that that changes very much if you look at those three different paradigms or different ways interwar corporatism, post-World War II neo-corporatism, and contemporary governance. So it's very much a historical approach, and that's also what you see in the Weimar book, which uh, I edited with Niklas Olsen, um, Critical Theories of Crisis in Europe from Weimar to the Euro, which very much was about reconstructing how crisis experiences related to the dysfunctionality of intermediary institutions led to, if not catastrophe, sometimes catastrophes, sometimes like profound problems in society. And what we are specifically looking at there is, first of all, the, the classical Weimar crisis, the 1920s and 30s, interwar Europe, but also the 1970s, and of course the sort of crisis which came after uh, the financial crisis in 2008. So it's very much interlinked uh, books which sets up a broader picture. And essentially what it comes down to is, first of all, the issue, how does law regulate the relationship between law, uh, economy and politics? 
And secondly, from there comes to how does that lead to or, or failure of proper regulation? How does that lead to societal crises? And that finally leads to actually to the very big question, which is behind. That is the one you find, for example, by Geo Simmel, the German sociologist, which uh, has a famous text from the late 19th century where he asked the question, how is society possible? That is, how does society as a whole actually hang together? And I think that's the big background question, which this very much links up to. So even though there's much more in society than uh, politics, economy and law, those three, three dimensions takes up a very big chunk of society, so to say. So if you can understand how those three interact, we are getting a, a big step ahead in understanding how society as a whole is actually operating. Sure. And I, I think readers or listeners and readers uh, appreciate that and the, the historical approach that underlies uh, all of that. Um, somewhat tangentially, I suppose, uh, in part three of the of the current volume, uh, Hans Miklitz, uh, Miklitz observes that the great crisis, I'm quoting here, um, the rise of neoliberalism and the decline of the social has triggered research on possible parallels between the failure of corporatist Weimar and the road to fascism. Um, he was referring in particular to your book uh, with Olson. Can you put that into some context uh, as you were doing just, just previously for our listeners less familiar with the social or corporatist Weimar? Mm-hmm. I mean, Weimar here is very much a metaphor because, uh, of course, Weimar Germany is to be understood to be the German Weimar Republic from 1919 to the National Socialist takeover 1933. But actually, the, the rather chaotic socio-economic and political developments uh, in, the, in the Weimar Germany were actually somewhat similar in many other European countries as well. So in many sense, Weimar is a metaphor for general developments in Europe at that time. That said, of course, um, the consequences of those, these chaotic, chaotic developments were, of course, in the end, far worse in Germany than elsewhere. But it's not like we had uh, stable economies and well-functioning democracies in Poland or Hungary or Austria or Italy or Spain, etc., either in, a, in that period. So uh, what, what we saw in Weimar it was actually a very much a general trait of the state of Europe at the time, although, as I said, the consequences ended up being far worse in Germany for various reasons. In Weimar Germany, and here I'm very much inspired by uh, Franz Neumann and his analysis of the rise of National Socialism in his book Behemoth, was a place where the institutional grid of society for a combination of reasons had eroded and become dysfunctional. What I mean with that is that both there was a both the formal and practical distinction between what is politics and what is the economy, what is public and what is private, especially what is public power and what is private power, or should we say what is public power and what is private interest, had broken down. That means private interests, business interests especially, had interfered into the state or sneaked into the state in a, in a manner which made the state dysfunctional. But also you saw that public power had moved into areas of society which normally would have belonged in the private area. So what we saw was that actually the, the basic distinctions which modern societies, at least in the Western world, tend to rely on, had broken down or had become eroded or dysfunctional. And this very much happened as a micro-phenomenon. It was very much from a bottom-up phenomenon where the, the kind of everyday practice of uh, 
courts, of uh, local administrations, of uh, business and politics interactions in cities at the regional level, etc., had eroded, so to say. And that was the kind of things which ended up making politics dysfunctional. At the same time, it also made the economy dysfunctional because obviously if you, so to say, could gain contracts, uh, for example, via political contacts, then uh, the price mechanism uh, of the market doesn't work, etc., etc. So you had this erosion of the institutional kind of foundation of the society. And that led to economic crisis and that led to a political crisis. Of course, combined with that you had unfortunate geopolitical circumstances because of the defeat in the First World War and uh, the Great Depression and other things which also took place at the same time. But I think the key thing is that this sort of erosion of the institutional kind of uh, integrity, both the normative and functional integrity of our institutions, is something that you see today in many countries as well. I think the United States is a good example. We all know about the Trump presidency, etc., and various issues going on in the United States in relation to the ongoing health crisis, for example. But also we see it in other countries. I think in the UK there are serious problems too, and Italy have had this sort of problems of well, for, for decades, and uh, it's now 25 years ago, Silvio Berlusconi became prime minister in um, Italy for the first time. So what we see is that this erosion of the institutional integrity of unfolding in, in many Western countries today, and I think that has big and important similarities to what happened in the 1920s and the 1930s. And I think I would add one more thing is a contextual thing, because when when Europe went into crisis in the 1920s, it was very much related to the fact that uh, until 1914, the world had been Eurocentric. Basically, Europe was calling the shots and the big European powers were the one setting the agenda for the globe in its entirety. And that broke down at that time. Or the First World War initiated a process towards that the breaking down of this kind of Eurocentrism. Uh, what we have now is that uh, what would came after uh, the Eurocentrism was very much Western centrism, which of course had the United States at the center, but also include, included Western Europe and Canada, Australia, New Zealand, etc. And now this sort of Western centric global world is in the process of breaking down. So there is like a double thing. You have a sort of say a, a global transformation and you have some bottom up kind of erosion of institutions taking place at the same time. And I think that what makes it especially dangerous, both back in the 1920s and 30s, but also today. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. An interesting side note is the idea that uh, Americans can't travel to uh, Europe at this point. Anyways, I wanted to sneak in that uh, Hans Miklas and mm -hmm. get you to talk about that. Thanks for, for sharing that about the social. I think it's good background for us. As kind of a meta question, though, um, for the whole process of editing a volume like this, again, is, is quite interesting. You are, you're, you're a seasoned author yourself and, and editor, and, and clearly from, from reading uh, your latest uh, volume, you had the contributors review other chapters as there's many cross-references and kind of shout-outs to other uh, contributors as part of this process. For, for those who are unfamiliar with compiling the scholarly work of, of colleagues. H how would you describe this, um, we'll say, cohesive, enhancing endeavor of cross-referencing? And, and were there any editorial surprises? Hmm. Um, 
first of all, I think editing is indeed an underestimated activity. Um, it's normally not what, you, what the thing you get most points for in academic uh, work, so to say. But it is actually um, an activity which requires quite a lot of diplomatic skill and empathy vis-a-vis the other contributors, uh, understanding what actually are they capable of, what do they need, what do they wish to do, and what uh, uh, what kind of direction do they want to take their work. And then still making aligning it with the other contributors and with the overall thrust of the project. So it's quite a di- diplomatic task, actually, to engage in um, in editing. And without wishing to offend anyone, one might say that academic scholars tend to be a little bit like artists. They have very strong subjectivities, meaning you have the occasional prima donna uh, or you have the those who are overly defensive of their scholarly positions and who does not want to engage in dialogue, etc. But you also, of course, the vast majority are very open, friendly, and wants to engage, so to say, and want to learn from others. But you have a Different ways of uh, different personalities out there, and uh, an editor has to handle these different personalities. Another point is, of course, there is a lot of uh, informal, but nonetheless quite clear hierarchies in uh, in scholarship in academic work, and also which becomes particularly clear when you do editing work. You have like junior scholars versus senior scholars. You have the very famous people and the less famous people, and so forth, and. Also, you have those from the more prestigious universities uh, who maybe can afford to uh, be less flexible and those who want, would like to get very much into this work because they come from a little bit from the periphery, etc., and who are more flexible, etc. So you have all these subtle kind of mini-human conflicts going on or conflict lines, which is the, what the editing works uh, circles around. Um, and the editor's job is very much to handle these Conflicts at the same time, actually, that the editor has to maintain the focus on the on the thrust of the project, the commonality of the project. What is it actually we want to achieve, and how is the work going to hang together as a coherent role? And that also means that the editor actually has to softly and gently instrumentalize the contributors a bit, because you want them to work for you want them to span their horse in front of your wagon, so to say, and you want to you know them to work in a certain direction, etc. But that is something which comes through a very patient dialogue and uh, conversations and reading and common giving and reading and common giving, etc. So it's it's a very like long and slow process, but uh, it's also a very giving giving one. First of all, you are helping other people, but also you you actually get to understand the works of these other scholars very well as an editor, and that is something, of course, you can use yourself. Surprises. Well, I'm not sure. I think actually the the clever scholars are typically the most modest ones. The ones that actually writes the best work is also those who are less pushy. I think that's the general thing you one can learn from editing, so to say. And that also means that the cleverest ones they can typically um, they are strong enough to ignore the informal hierarchies of academia and actually do what they really want to do. And uh, seeing that unfolding is actually a, a big pleasure. Interesting. Thank, thanks for sharing that. And speaking of the volume itself, you dedicated uh, the volume, uh, and, and again, these are all scholarly articles, and, and you dedicated them uh, to your supervisors. Can, can you share a bit about the influence of uh, Christian Jorges and uh, Gunter Tubner uh, on your work? I have now 
reached a stage and age where I'm kind of uh, doing my own thing. That says uh, both of them have been tremendously important for my scholarly development. I should also mention actually a third one, which is also contributing to the book, namely Karl-Heinz Ladera, uh, who has a chapter in the book. And the interesting thing is that the three of them, Karl-Heinz Ladera, Christian Jörgens, and Günther Teubner, were all at the University of Bremen back in the 1970s. And they are very much kind of the three musketeers of critical legal thinking in Germany, so to say. They are very much uh, the ones which developed an alternative kind of position, which was non-dogmatic, non-conservative kind of way of doing law in Germany. In that sense, they are, so to say, the German equivalent to the critical legal studies movement in the United States. At the same time, they are very different in what they do and how they do it and their own scholarly interests. Christian Jorges, for example, is very much influenced by Jürgen Habermas. Luther Teubner is very much influenced by Niklas Luhmann. And Karl-Heinz Ladera is very much coming from a French postmodernist kind of tradition, uh, Derrida, etc. So they're doing different things. And what I'm trying to do is actually to cherry pick a bit. That is, I take things from, from all threes, but I'll do something different with it. That also comes down to the fact that Luther Teubner is mainly doing global law and global, uh, global affairs, whereas... Uh, Christian Jorgis is mainly doing EU law and European affairs. And that's actually reflecting very much my own division, doing both European European kind of perspective, but also a global perspective. So if you want, if you wish, I'm kind of making a combination of them, but I'm also moving on beyond them. And actually what I do today is probably uh, uh, only so limited, directly influenced by these scholars. But they played a very, very big role in a, in my scholarly development, which is also the reasons why I dedicated the volume to them. Sure. No, thanks uh, for sharing that. Uh, Gunther uh, Teubner was um, at UC Berkeley in the 1970s, and and he studied a bit with uh, the famous sociologist uh, Philip Selznick. And there's a few students of public administration and policy out there who are familiar with his um, uh, 1949 work, uh, TVA and the Grassroots, a, a study in the sociology of formal organization. Does does he play into that kind of background at all? The linkage starts to be quite far then, in the sense that he is sort of saying, um, uh, but yes, it, it does play in. But also, I mean, the first question is how much did Philip Selznick influence Günther Teubner? And that's a good question, which I guess Günther Teubner better answer himself. But I do think that, that Selznick and Teubner have a thing in common, namely that they really see law as made in society and not in parliament or in you know, kind of in, inside the, the formal institutions. Uh, it's very much a societal phenomenon. Uh, and I think that is the key thing they share. And of course, then Teubner has added some continental European, some German kind of ways of dealing with this. But at the same time, they were probably closer at the time because um, American scholarship in the mid-20th century was very much still European-influenced. It didn't really stand for its own yet at that time. You had people like Selznick, but you also had the Talcott Parsons and others, which were very much influenced on what went on in Europe. Today, that's somewhat different, but at that time, American scholarship was still sort of a sort of a attachment to European scholarship. Um, so they were, so to say, naturally close at the time. But I think American and European scholarship has moved apart since then. And there is, it is getting, actually getting more and more difficult to have a debate between Americans and Europeans because they tend to live in different universes today. Well, there's definitely an ebb and flow to this. But more importantly, with regard to uh, 
uh, Teubner, um, how, how does Nicholas uh, Luhmann's systems theory and I suppose maybe less so Jürgen Habermas's discourse theory um, figure into his calculus and, and in turn your own? Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, Teubner is clearly devoted to Nicholas Luhmann and his uh, the social uh, systems theory of Nicholas Luhmann. But I think it's important to, to acknowledge that Gunther Teubner at the end of the day makes a normative theory. He's a lawyer. And that means his primary identity is that of being a lawyer. And as a, as a, the identity as a sociologist is a secondary identity. So it's very much the sort of kind of normative legal kind of theory which Gunther Teubner is pushing. In contrast, Nicholas Luhmann, although he was actually educated as a lawyer, he worked as a professor of sociology and had a more kind of sociology as his primary identity. So there are some disciplinary kind of differences between the two of them. Uh, and it's the descriptive versus normative kind of theory kind of distinction, which is quite central. Um, for myself, I'm probably more on the Luhmannian side than in the sense not necessarily following his theory, but in the sense that what I do is more sociological and less normative than what Günther Teubner is doing. As for Habermas, he plays a far smaller role for Teubner. But I think for people in the English-speaking world, that is um, very often difficult to see for uh, the reason that Niklas Luhmann's work was actually introduced in the English-speaking world via the work of Jürgen Habermas. That is, it's very much Habermas's interpretation of Luhmann, which is the one people knows in the English-speaking world. So. And of course, that is a, a somewhat distorted interpretation because it's an interpretation which is made to fit Habermas's own work, so to say. And that means that many people assume that things which actually comes from uh, Luhmann is actually Habermasian. But actually, Habermas took on a great, great deal from Luhmann. And that's also something which, which however, is difficult to see that he did that when it comes in English translations, etc., on that part, my own take, and that's actually related to my very first publication, and if I had to say so myself, I think also my best publication. It's only been downhill since my first uh, publication. My first publication was on uh, the Habermas-Luhmann debate. They had an ongoing debate for 30 years. And there I'm arguing, and I would still maintain that position, is that actually both Habermas and Luhmann's work can only be understood as a redevelopment or further development of classical German idealism, that is the kind of philosophical tradition associated with Kant, with Fichte, with Hegel, and all the way up to Edmund Husserl and phenomenology in the early 20th century. And if one understands those theories in, in that context, they become somewhat more clear what is the division of labor between Luhmann and Habermas, but also how that plays into, for example, the works of Christian Jörgers or Günther Teubner somehow. Mm, nice. Teubner and Jörgers both contribute articles uh, to the current volume, and, and they really amount to kind of bookends uh, for the latest work. And again, your, your latest book, The Law of Political Economy, Transformation and the Function of Law, section one is titled Studying the Law of Political Economy, and Christian Jorgis co-authors the first article, Rutner Teubner uh, writes the very last article of the book in section four, uh, Towards a New Law of Political Economy. Um, I just want to take a moment to examine those bookends of your volume, obviously because uh, just to build on your thoughts and enter into your book. In the first article, The Legal Proprium of Economic Constitution, Jorgis and Everson utilize the work as they put it, quoting here, 
two master thinkers of post-war German jurisprudence. I'll let you elaborate and, and just point out that these two German legal thinkers, uh, as the authors write, were uh, each duty-bound to redefine the proprium of law and the ordering of the economy within a constitution. Can, can you unpack some of the significance of what Jorgis and Everson are constructing uh, with these two master thinkers? Mm-hmm. Uh, the two master thinkers they're referring to are uh, Ernst Joachim Mestmecker and Rudolf Wittelter. Mestmecker, he was very much uh, the representative of the auto-liberal tradition in post-war uh, Germany, post-Second World War uh, Germany. And Rudolf Wittelter was the representative of what we call a left-leaning, social democratic kind of uh, tradition. So it's very much the kind of continuum which I talked about before that we are back to, that there was the one who kind of represented the further development of these different strands of either center-right or center-left kind of positions in, a, in the German legal and political landscape. Now, um, the interesting thing is, of course, that Rudolf uh, Wittholder was the PhD supervisor of uh, Christian Jörges. So there is a certain bias built into the chapter, and they also acknowledge that, that directly in the chapter, because they basically say, well... Of course, our sympathy is for Rudolf Bithölter rather than Mestmecker. But, uh, so it's important to keep that in mind, that they are quite blunt, um, Christian Jörges and Michelle Everson, about who they are, so to say, in this uh, supporting, so to say. At, at the same time, however, there's a great respect for the position of, um, of Mestmecker. And basically what they, they are saying is that uh, quite carefully to reconstruct what are the basic assumptions, what are the basic starting points, and what are kind of the normative projects behind these two scholarly positions. And uh, also, how have these kind of positions and these approaches influenced issues such as European integration, debates on globalization, and also areas of inequality and the welfare state, etc., etc., because these both these master fingers have been hugely influential in Germany for shaping how society looks like today. So they very much engaged in a careful kind of reconstruction of these foundational positions, which basically sets the frame for any debate which we have today on economic constitutionalism. So that is really what they aim to do in this chapter, I think. As the article develops, this conflict law perspective, uh, it, it ends by pointing to the Put It to the People march in the UK in the March of last year, uh, and this link to Brexit. Can you elaborate a, a bit on that, on the implications there? Mm-hmm. I think from the perspective of Christian Jorges and Michel Everson, I think uh, they would argue Rudolf Wittfelter takes a stance which is very much pro a democratic ordering of the, of the economy. Maybe not in terms of a direct, so to say, council democracy uh, in the, in the, on the factory ground, so to say, but that the state and the kind of institutions surrounding the states, unions and business associations, etc., should get together and set the frames for the economy. Whereas Miss um, Mecker, one of the fathers of what we call the European Economic Constitution, takes the auto-liberal idea that what you need is a a legal ordering and a legal, giving legal stability to the economy, but also in that operation insulating the economy from uh, arbitrary interference, from uh, political infightings and ideological battles, etc., etc. 
And of course, that also means that the mist maker position, when viewed from the Jurgis and Everson angle, becomes a very technocratic or you could even say detached from democratic decision-making processes somehow. That is that the law regulates the economy relatively autonomously from political processes. And that's, I think, what they are sort of say arguing against. And probably they are also saying that put it to the people march and the sort of kind of social mobilization, which that um, reflected is very much something which is needed in order to have a democratic regulation of the economy. And also implicitly might saying that one of the reasons that we had Brexit is that the current kind of framing of the European economic constitution within the European Union was not democratic enough uh, in various ways. The last article of the volume, the other bookend, is written by uh, Gunther Teubner, and it's uh, titled Counter Rights on the Trans-Subjective Potential of Subjective Right. And this is the last section, and the last section is titled again, and I mentioned this before, Towards a New Law of Political Economy. This contribution seems interesting on a number of levels, not least of which is is the author's uh, influence on you. In this piece, Teubner is building on the work of Christopher Mink's uh, Critique of Rights, in which he notes Mink's debts to, to Luhmann, Derrida, Foucault, Habermas, Marx, and Nietzsche. I say those not just to drop those names, but just to give a kind of a feel for how Teubner's redirecting the theory towards trans-subjective rights. You summarized Teubner's capstone piece uh, in your introduction in this way. You said that Teubner generalizes the above reflections by advancing a vision of rights as not only individual rights, but also as trans-subjective rights of communicative, collective, and institutional formations in both the public and the private sphere. As such, Teubner argues for a radical expansion of law, allowing it to capture societal processes which are currently beyond its reach. Can can you expand on, on your summary there a bit and explain why is it important to Teubner to, to modify Monk's focus on the individualist uh, conception of subjective rights? Mm-hmm. I think this is a very crucial um, question, which also takes off a lot of my own work and the work of many others as well, by the way. The thing is that for the last at least 40 years or so, basically the world we live in has been guided by law and economics. Law and economics is a particular school where you try to solve legal problems with the help of microeconomic instruments. That is, you try to see it as an economic kind of problem and you try to use the methodology and the techniques of economics to solve legal problems. And that means basically that most of the kind of approaches you have to solving legal disputes from antitrust to environmental disputes to many, many other things, there's only atomistic individual actions which counts. And then you can sum all the individual actions together and then you get to something which is become society, so to say. The problem is that doesn't really work in practice because actually this sort of theories does not really have notion of society uh, in place. And it also means that we cannot really make this one-to-one calculation from the sum of individual actions to what becomes then the collective outcome, so to say. And I think we have exactly the same problems with subjective rights because obviously in our history of subjective rights, we are talking about freedom of religion, right to property, 
etc., etc., freedom of speech for individuals. It's all bound up around individuals. And of course, that is completely fine and right and positive in many, many ways. And there's no reason, so to say, to dismantle that. But sociologically speaking, I think that is quite misguided understanding of what uh, subjective rights are actually doing. Because it it's ignores sort of the, the, the structural, the societal, the collective dimension of rights. If you take something like private property rights, for example, then they obviously they are there to protect the property of individuals. I want my land, my farm, my house, whatever it is I own, my car, and the state cannot interfere with my property, uh, at least only on very certain and specific conditions. But the interesting thing is, if you look at it historically and sociologically, private property rights were also introduced for another reason, namely, to, when, you, when you designate something as private property, it also means that you can actually tax it. It becomes taxable because it is designated as private. Um, and it's first in the moment it's made private, the state gains the right to actually go out and tax it and derive resources and money from that uh, property. That means there is far more to private property rights than just the individual kind of protection, so to say. You see something similar with religion, for example, the freedom of, uh, of religion, that you can choose whatever belief you want and uh, the state should not interfere whether you read the Quran or the Bible or something else. The interesting thing is what happened when you introduced freedom of religion was not just that people gained the individual right to exercise whatever religion they wanted to exercise. It also meant that religion became a private matter. But before that, religion had been a public matter. And when it was a public matter, it meant that religious institutions, the church typically in the, in, in the Western world, had a certain standing and had a right as a public institutions which could compete with the state for authority, for a monopoly of defining norms, etc., etc. So in the moment the state says, no, actually you have a private right of religion, it also means that the church and the religious institutions loses their status as public institutions, and therefore also their their right to speak, so to say, on public matters, or at least to be considered as almost equal or uh, higher than the state, and even in some cases, as the one who defines what is the public kind of view on certain things. So again, also here, there is an important individual dimension to rights, but obviously it goes far beyond that, because there's also a collective, a structural, a systemic dimension to rights. And I think what Tribunal tries to do here is to use Menke's theory of subjective rights, which is essentially a Hegelian theory of subjective rights, to change it in a way which gets this other dimension into the focus point, instead of making it into a purely individualistic and atomistic kind of concept of rights. Well, hey, thanks for taking the time to give us a, a, a full answer and, and to share your thoughts on it. Hey, you're elucidating basically um, what amounts to important contributions, uh, not only to this book, uh, and both of these pieces uh, help readers and listeners better connect to your own academic influences in the field. You can see, I think, from listening to your answers that there's a a bit of a requirement here that people have a broad range of interdisciplinary and, and comparative interests. It seems like that's what the law of political economy in some ways is, is all about, or at least based upon. Although Jorgis and Everson are the first contribution, the current volume's first section, 
It's actually your introduction uh, that lays the groundwork for this volume, well over 400 pages, and not the introduction, but the volume itself, well over 400 pages. Let's look at the overall structure of the, of the volume uh, before we talk more about it. You divide the book's contributions uh, from the other legal scholars into four sections. Uh, the first section, as mentioned, is studying the law of political economy. The second section, uh, transformations of the law of the globalizing economy. The third section, the transformation of the law of political economy in Europe. And then the fourth one, and, and again, uh, back to uh, where uh, Tordner's piece uh, capstones or bookends it, is towards a new law of political economy. Um, your, your section headings obviously speak for themselves, but can you elaborate on how you envisioned your thematic intent in the four parts? Yes. Um, I think it's quite basic, actually, I think, because the first part is very much about, so to say, setting the scene. What are the major debates in Europe, United States, uh, surrounding this theme of law political economy? And what are kind of the, the basic vocabulary, terminology, positions out there, which uh, can be observed in this debate, so to say. So it's very much about like providing a way into the uh, to the materia and to the field, so to say. So it, it does establish like a foundation to which one then one can continue to. And there in the following two sections, the one on global law and the one on European law, we then go down in the substance, like concrete, more concrete material and cases. And as you mentioned before, there's things on labor law, there's things on competition law, there's environmental law uh, and so forth and with the global and european dimensions the attempt is basically to to cover both but of course also knowing that europe is not like the rest of the world that means you what have, goes on in europe does not necessarily mean you can find similar things in latin america or in asia or in in africa or elsewhere so that but still for a volume although 400 pages it's it's quite impossible to take in all the regions of the world so we had to start somewhere. It would be interesting actually to expand and look at how does this look in Asia, how does this look in Latin America, and so on. But that will be the the topic of another book, I think. Um, and then finally, in the fourth section, the attempt is actually to come up with like outlines or ideas for a new theoretical framework and a new methodological approach for understanding what is law of political economy. I would not say it's really finalized in this final section. It's more like setting the direction and putting some pointers out where this could go down the road. So uh, that would probably also require um, another book to come up in a more positive sense with the actual new framework for a law political economy. But it's uh, very much initiating a bigger project or a further project, if you wish. Sure. Well, hey, you begin uh, the introductory chapter um, your chapter by noting, uh, in quotes here, uh, the law of political economy is a contentious ideological field, and, and you mentioned this prior, uh, back to quotes, uh, characterized by antagonistic relations between scholarly positions, which tend to be either affirmative or critical of capitalist modes of economic re reproduction. And again, we, we talked a bit about that. That said, can, can you differentiate the significance of holism and differentiation? Hey, why are they necessary features of, for an understanding of law 
and political economy? Well, I think it's not actually particularly for the law political economy. I think it's more general. I think there's basically two kinds of legal and social scientific scholars on planet Earth. There is those who subscribe to a holistic worldview, which sees the sum of the past as being larger than the parts. And then there is those who takes a relational kind of perspective, saying it's all about differentiations. It's about all about distinctions, so to say. So either you start out from difference, dif- uh, difference or you start out from holism. And it, actually, if you take basically any academic text, text, old or new, in the first page, you can typically spot which camp the author belongs to, so to say. So this is very much like a kind of a foundational distinction. And a lot of the assumptions written into academic text comes from this distinction. And that also means that they're getting guided by it. And many scholars are not actually terribly reflexive about the facts. They just non-reflexively assume either one or the other, so to say. But it very much also comes down to political debates. I think political debates are very instructive of this because there you see classical liberal perspectives would be differentiation perspectives, which we know we do not necessarily need to have a holistic entity for society in its entirety, or, or we do not necessarily have to agree, all of us. Whereas you would have both on the very left side and the very right side, you would have political positions which would argue, you know, the nation or the class or something is providing kind of the the holistic ordering of the world. And that's so very much the basic category of, of human interaction, of societal organization, which we are talking about here. And the book is very much, and I think that's one of the key elements of the book, is to try to see how does, uh, what role does law play and legal instruments and legislation and jurisprudence play in this process of managing this tension between holistic and differentiated approaches to society. That's very much what the book is about. And actually, it's very much about finding a third way between those two uh, extreme positions, if you wish. Yeah, interesting. Do you? How do you contextualize these concepts with your students? Do, do you start with some examples to to illustrate the significance? Do you draw on sources? Uh, I think an interesting example is, of course, that when you start discussing what is a market, because uh, if you look at um, our idea of the market, so classical Adam Smith on onwards, then is it well? The market has individual actors who hand uh, who promote their self-interest or they act according to self-interest, and then there is a uh, exchange going on uh, between the and there is demand and supply, and they will tend to go to some sort of equilibrium, so to say. So the the entire basis of um, of market kind of thinking is that no, you only have individuals and they operate for their own interest. But at the same time, if you go in and analyze kind of um, uh, how the semantics of the market, how markets actually are talked about, then you see that it always says the market thinks or the market demands or the market responded to, etc., etc. There you actually see that in practice, one assumes that the market is something bigger than the individuals. It is something, it's a holistic thing, you know. And I, I think the, the idea of equilibrium, which all economic theories basically rely on, or at least all mainstream theories, uh, economic theories rely on, is very much a holistic figure. Because if, if you talk about an equilibrium, that means you have a yin and yang kind of structure where something, if something goes up, the other thing has to go down, so to say. But you can only talk about this kind of yin and yang figure 
if there is a if you assume there is a holistic whole which can be in balance, so to say. And I think that is where you see that there is this a hidden holism in mainstream economic thinking, which is actually not expressed in the assumptions and in the kind of official kind of theoretical underpinning of economic theory. So there are some fundamental contradictions, if you wish, uh, in this. And I think it's also important here to add that the counterpositions, that is typically left-wing, social democratic or socialist kind of positions, which are very critical of uh, capitalism and market mechanisms, they then typically tend to say, well, the market mechanism destroys some kind of holistic entity, like our culture, our nation, our local community, or whatever uh, cultural entity they are referring to. And that means, actually, that the only things that the left-wingers are doing in their critique of the right-wingers is actually to exchange we'll say, market holism with cultural holism. And I think that's a very um, meeker response, even if they're right in the, the initial criticism. And the entire book is actually an attempt to go beyond that. The attempt is to say, maybe law can dissolve some of these conflicts in a way so we do not have to end up in these holistic kind of categories, which are essentially pre-modern categories, which uh, were medieval. In medieval times, they were the, the foundations of our society. And you see them then recycled in the 17th, 18th, 19th century in various ways. Again, we, we don't really seem to come out of this kind of holistic framework. But that is exactly what the book is trying to help us to do. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, ex- extend the arguments. Um, well, another key feature of the law and political economy is the institutional relation between hierarchy and spontaneity. Uh, can you unpack the significance of these terms that you mention also uh, in, in your introduction? Yes, I mean, these are first of all terms which has been used by other scholars as well, so it's not my invention, so to say. But the way we do it here in the book, or I do it here in the book, is very much to focus on different spheres of society, religion, politics, science, economy, etc., and the argument would be that all of these different spheres of society have a hierarchical dimension and they have a, a, a dimension characterized with what we call institutionalized spontaneity. That means it's just not, it's not spontaneity which just emerges out of nowhere, but it has something which is still institutionalized to a certain degree. What I mean with that is, for example, if you look at the economy, you have firms, which are organizations, and they are clearly characterized by hierarchy. But you also have the markets, where you have a social coordination taking place in, in a supposedly relatively spontaneous manner, so to say. So you have both a hierarchical dimension and a spontaneous dimension in the economy. If you look at politics, for example, you have a hierarchy in the terms of the institutional structures, parliaments and presidencies and uh, governments and public administrations, all that sort of stuff. But you also have dimension characterized by spontaneity in the form of public opinion. Like, what happens out there? What does the what does the people think, so say? And how do they get to think this? And what sort of consensus can be derived from that? In religion, you have something similar, where you have institutionalized kind of religious institutions, churches, and so forth. And then you have the religious congregations of believers, where there's a lot of, so to say, spontaneous religious emotions uh, being unfolded, sort of say. 
So the key thing is that you all areas of society in different ways have this distinction between hierarchy and spontaneity. The interesting thing is then is we then start looking at what we call totalizing ideologies. Then they typically aim to eradicate this distinction. If you look at communism, especially Leninism, actually in the 1920s, there the objective, the clear state objective was to transform society into an organizational society. So the idea was everything had to be organized. That means everything had to be subdued to hierarchy. That was the key thing of the, the communist project, so to say. So the idea was spontaneity should be eradicated from society and we should maintain hierarchy only. If you then, on the other hand, take the, another, the, the other ex- extreme, then it's something which we find maybe in, in structural liberalism, as I call it, which is essentially what, uh, what one also calls neoliberalism, because here you would say, no, the market should rule. There is only one useful or legitimate way of organizing social interaction and coordination, and that is through market mechanisms. That is, we should have as little hierarchy as possible. So, uh, political battles and debates very much circulate around how much hierarchy, hierarchy should we have and how much spontaneity should we have. Where should the balance be, so to say, or where should we draw the distinction between the two? And the extreme cases always says, no, the very distinction should disappear altogether. And that's where the totalitarianism and fundamentalism comes in, I think. And not to um, belabor the dualisms or the binary nature of things, but uh, in the first section after you've introduced holism, differentiation, hierarchy, spontaneity, you title that first section the multiple discourses on law and political economy, and you discuss uh, different methodological points of departure, and and you really distinguish uh, between the largely German ordo-liberal school and the largely American law and economics approach. Hey, how would you differentiate the two? And I know you've covered some of this ground already, but how would you differentiate those two methodological approaches? Yeah, I think basically the the, the German auto-liberal school is, is essentially a macro approach. That means the focus is on society as such and how to establish coherency, order, stability, inside society. And that also means that it largely leaves out individuals. Individuals does not play a big role in this theory. Uh, and that's exactly what Christian Jorgensen and Michel Everson maybe was criticizing when it says the People's March is about what about the individuals, so to say. The law and economics kind of approach, which as I said also has been dominating for the last four decades or so, is very, very different because here it's about how individual actions what are the consequences of individual actions? And that means, let's take an example. Um, until some 20 years ago, antitrust policy, what we in Europe call competition policy, in the European context was largely decided by auto-liberal concerns. It was about making sure that no company would have so much power in society that it could sort of distort or threaten the, the political order, etc. There was very much an insight learned from the Weimar period that you do not want as few companies to dominate, as we now have, for example, in relation to American tech giants like Google and Amazon and Apple and so on. So the, the point was not an economic one. It was not about whether we would have a higher economic gain from uh, splitting up companies or not. It was about that whether the concentration of power was dangerous to society. 
society. Um, so the economic argument was not really valid. It was a legal argument for antitrust policy. Since then, American um, uh, influence law and economics has taken over. And then when you look at, let's say, at mergers in, in competition policy in Europe, it's about does this benefit the consumers or not? That is, uh, will the consumers pay higher prices for their goods if there is this merger taking place, or will they have cheaper prices on their goods? And whether that then leads to some kind of broader societal kind of consequences, concentration of power or market dominance or something, is in principle irrelevant or at least secondary. So it ends up with two very different ways of looking at society. And uh, actually, they're dealing with two different problem constellations if we look at auto-liberalism and American law and economics. And that also, in my optic, they are not really substitutable. But the problem is they have actually been used as substitutes. You say either we do the auto-liberal way or we do it the American law and economics way. But actually, the two of them are dealing with different things. But I do think also the law and economics approach has a, a more fundamental problem because as Margaret Thatcher famously said that there is no such thing as society. And I do not think there is actually a concept of society in law and economics. So they cannot really articulate what are the consequences for these uh, microeconomic perspectives of individual consumer action or individual firm action for the wider society. And this broader perspective on what is actually the consequences for social inequality, for territorial cohesion, for kind of the influence of private interest on political decision making, etc., etc. All these things are not really taken into account in the law and economics approach. And I think that's highly problematic somehow. And I think many, many of the problems we have in society in, West, in the Western world today, especially in the United States, but also elsewhere, uh, are very much linked to this. And the, the poverty of this kind of paradigm, which has been ruling us for the last 40 years. Thanks for sharing that. In your second section, uh, the law of political economy, a, a subcase of a grand debate, you cover several historical points, including the significance, well, of holism and differentiation, as, as you mentioned. Hey, can you share uh, with us the significance of that divide, uh, again, maybe briefly, between market holism and cultural holism, represented by the significance of this ongoing contention between the ideas of Hayek and those of Polonye for the political economy. And again, not trying to set up this binary thing, but in some ways, I, I suppose for argumentative purposes, it, it works. For, for that matter, maybe how structural Marxism was replaced with structural liberalism, that is neoliberalism in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have a very unfruitful kind of political and academic debate going on where you say either you dislike neoliberalism or either you like neoliberalism and if you like neoliberalism you say actually neoliberalism doesn't exist at all it's just like natural things of the world that's how it's supposed to be my take is actually that they are actually each other's mirror images if you look at the interesting thing with like kind of hardcore structural marxism from the 1970s they would basically say that in the end of the day economic interest rules they would say, in the end of the day, the economy enjoys supremacy in society. It's the economy which drives societal evolution, which sets the basic structures of society, and which also determines largely the fates of individuals. Whether you're born rich or you're born poor is kind of what 
decides uh, your position in life and in society. An interesting thing is, if you look at structural um, liberalists or neoliberalists, they will say exactly the same thing. In the end of the day, it's about the money. It's the money which drives society. It's the economic uh, developments which sets the basic features of society. The economy should be supreme. That is, economic concerns is what should guide politics, science, and so forth. And societal evolution is basically being driven by capitalist innovation, etc., etc. So the, at the end of the day, both schools are actually saying the same thing uh, and having the same basic assumptions. And I think actually this is underappreciated, I think, and that they are actually each other's mirror images. And it only works, one only works if, if you actually have the other one. And I think if you go back in time, we saw something similar because Hayek and Polanyi, as I mentioned before, they had this kind of distinction, well, should the economy be autonomous and rule itself? Or should it be embedded into politics and social interactions and so forth? But in the end of the day, the Polanyi proponents of the contemporary times saying, if you do not want to have, so to say, market fundamentalism and market holism, that everything, that society is equal to the market, and the market is guided by equilibrium mechanisms, which are holistic in nature, that is, that the entire world is say, some one big market, so to say, then there is there's no actually what guides us or what should be important or what should guide us is our embeddedness in cultural kind of universes. And I think, that can, as I mentioned before, it can be the local community, it can be a tribe, it can be a nation, it can be whatever it is. But it's these cultural communities which are, so to say, the counter thing. But both of them are holistic in nature. And my point would be it's emancipation and freedom lies very much in the ability of humans and of human mankind to escape those holistic notions somehow. And that means these theoretical debates are are deeply non-inspiring, and I think they are not really very helpful for for cognitively understanding how society operates, but also to develop normative kind of articulations about where we would like society to go somehow. It comes down to they are actually, in the end of the day, sharing the same more fundamental theoretical premises. Uh, and I think that is where we have to start. We have to look into those more, more foundational, more deeper theoretical premises which they depart from. And if we can get rid of those and develop new ones, then, well, then we have something to work with. There you go. And, and well, and that's a bit of work. I mean, uh to break free of uh, the handcuffs of, of mm-hmm. these kind of things. Bringing the, the law aspect of this back in, can you unpack your point about its uh, central contribution, uh, that is law, law's central contribution being form-giving, that is, the elaboration of this point as you, as you went on to reference Kelson's identity thesis and Brunkhorst's uh, in quotes, no sovereignty beyond legality. Mm-hmm. Um, the world co- consists of literally billions of social exchange- exchanges, uh, linguistic articulations, exchange of goods, ex- all sorts of stuff takes place all the time, all over the world. But if you, then we could ask the question, when does something become designated as a specific ec- economic exchange? If I give you a cup of coffee, uh, in the canteen, or uh, it's not understood as an economic exchange. It's just uh, I give a colleague 
uh, a cup of coffee, fine. But if I sign a contract and you pay $25 or euros for that cup of coffee or $5 or $1, then it becomes an economic exchange. That is, um, the key thing is that to designate something as an economic exchange is linked to the signing of a contract and it's linked to its legal status. It's when it's being designated legally as an economic exchange, it becomes an economic exchange. And that means it's the law which, so to say, gives the form to economics and it only becomes observable as an economic phenomenon when it has a legal form. And you could say the same for politics. There is many expressions of opinions in this world and of uh, protests and uh, disagreements and so forth. And there's also plenty of decision-making going on in, in this world. But it's only in the moment that it happens within a legally structured procedure of uh, voting, of decision-making, etc., that this is designated as a political kind of act or a political process or a political decision. And again, it's the law which gives a certain social activity a form which then makes it become a political thing. So the key thing is actually that law is constitutive for these various areas. If something is political, if something is religious, if something is scientific, if something is economic, it's because there is a certain institutional legal form which allows us to designate these social activities as, for example, economic, political, religious, or scientific, etc. Um, so in this way, it's very much uh, the law which is foundational and constitutive. And if you had to be a bit provocative, you can actually say it's the law which constitutes the political, it's the law which constitutes the economy, not the other way around. Because it's first when there is a legal form that something becomes observable and becomes designated as, for example, economic or political. And I think this is something which is underestimated in our society because, of course, there's plenty of interactions and social exchanges and articulations out there. But before, you can only work with them when they're put into certain categories and putting them into categories and giving them a form. That's exactly what law does. Yes, and uh, as you say, underestimated, underappreciated. Um, I, I would be remiss in, in some ways if I uh, didn't bring this up. Hey, you argue uh, that the law of political economy is based upon um, recycled material emerging from the law of religion. Uh, can you explain what the investiture controversy was about and why it underlies the law of political economy, this very gradual shift of attention from the sphere of, it, of, of religion um, to that of the economy, as you put it, is a recent phenomena culminating in three uh, different institutional formations. Can you tell us um, what they are and what in turn it implies for the function and status of law? Um, I think this is heavier getting to the very core of uh, Western society and maybe into the foundational moment of Western society. The investiture controversy unfolded over more than 100 years in, in around the 11th century between the Pope and the German Roman Emperor. And basically, the conflict was about who's supreme. Is the emperor uh, in charge of the pope, or is the pope in charge of the emperor, so to say? Who has the higher status, and who would have to follow instructions from who? And that, of course, had all sorts of practical kind of implications. For example, who could collect tax, who uh, 
could appoint bishops, which essentially is an administrative law kind of competence, who has the right to appoint certain officials to certain uh, positions, etc. For example, bishops, that was very much what they were fighting about. And as I said, this went on for a very, very long period. And as part of this uh, process of this conflict, both of them started to develop, both the Pope and the Emperor, to develop legal schools. And the, the first uh, legal education, modern legal education at the University of Bologna, was founded as part of this process, uh, so to say, because the Pope needed better arguments in his fight with the emperor. So that's where, basically, you could say, to put it a bit strong, modern law was founded as part of this uh, conflict, because at least the modern legal profession and modern legal scholarship was founded as part of this conflict. And the outcome was, more interestingly enough, that first of all, there was a compromise, because what the compromise was that the emperor at the end would be in supreme in worldly matters, that is, in ongoing real-life matters, if you wish, and the pope would be supreme in spiritual matters, that is, what goes on in terms of uh, the spheres of religion. So what you had, actually, was that the outcome was a separation of religion from politics, and religion became one, say, designated sphere of society, and politics became a different designated sphere of society. More interestingly, there was a legal framing which allowed this distinction to be introduced both formally and practically, and also so to separate law, through law, religion and politics was kept separated. And that, that kind of logic is exactly the same you see when political economy emerges in the 17th century as a discipline, because what you have is actually that we start talking about politics as something specific, you have political appointed people, we have political institutions, we have political processes, etc. And we have, on the other hand, economic processes, uh, economic activities, etc., etc. That is, the condition for to talk about political economy is actually very much that politics and economy are separate, because then subsequently you get to the question, how do you then combine the two? And that's the, the need for combining and synchronizing, coordinating the two parts of society, is what political economy is all about. So it's this logic of separation of spheres, of religion, first religion and politics, and later on politics and economy, which, with the help of legal means, which is at the core of modern society. And it's in this particular sense, I say, that actually the, the forerunner kind of conflict and process was the one between politics and religion. And actually what happened afterwards in the relation between politics and economy was just a, a recycling of this old conflict which started with the investiture controversy. And I think this, this religious foundation, if you wish, of our modern political economy also plays into when we, this uh, continued existence of, of a holistic kind of thinking in political economy, both from the pro-capitalists and the contra-capitalists, because actually they are working with a hidden theological, religious kinds of concepts without knowing it, actually. Yeah, interesting. Th thanks for that. There, there's a lot going on there. Your introduction, and again, not putting you on the spot here a bit in terms of generalizing, but your introduction differentiates between the turn to corporatism, neo-corporatism, uh, as well as the turn to governance. Can, can you highlight the significance of these shifts for the law of political economy? Mm -hmm. If you Talk about, so say, relatively recent history, that is the 20th century onwards. Essentially, we have had three 
major periods, at least if you look at it from an European and probably also more general Western angle, so to say. And that is interwar corporatism, the sort of corporatism we had from, say, 1918 to 1945. And then uh, the sort of uh, post-World War II neo-corporatism we had from 1945 up to the 1970s. And then we ever had the, what we call a turn to governance going on from the late 70s until today. And probably right now we are standing at a moment where this ends and this is being terminated and we don't really know what comes after, which also is why the book is at, uh, coming at, a, I think, an interesting time in, a, in history. The interesting thing is, if you look at the three types, then the core thing of corporatism in the interwar period, because obviously you had many different types of corporatism. You had a progressive socialist uh, corporatism, you had anarchist uh, corporatism, you had reactionary Catholic corporatism, you had fascist corporatism, you had national socialist corporatism, etc., etc., you had many different types of corporatism, but they all shared uh, several things. First of all, they had a holistic understanding of society. They were saying, it's, this is not about the state. It's also not about public power. It's not about specific segments of society. No, it's about the society in its entirety. And the, the legitimacy, the orientation point, etc., is society as a whole, so to say. At the same time, they were also saying that law should not play a big role. All these different types of corporatism would say law was an obstacle for unfolding societal energies, for uh, having a legitimate and kind of uh, society, etc. So they were anti-legalistic, basically. And of course, that meant that they wanted to get rid of these legal distinctions between public and private, between public and private power, between uh, the hierarchical and the spontaneous dimensions of society and so on. And that's very much where the, the Weimar Republic erosion kind of society it came from, very much this kind of corporatist thinking. Then you get neo-corporatism after 1945, and that's especially in Western Europe, it's very much a Western European phenomenon. Of course, Eastern Europe was under Soviet control at the time, and the United States kind of had its own kind of way of organizing things. In neo-corporatism, it's actually fundamentally different from interwar corporatism because there you have very clear hierarchies, you have a very high level of unification with procedures, decision-making, uh, and there you have organized decision-making essentially between the state and employers and unions. So you have a triangular relationship between the three, but within kind of across-the-board nationwide kind of frameworks, which would take in the entire labor market, etc., and most welfare institutions, etc., in a given national setting. So it was very much like kind of a, a complete structure, but which was legally organized and which was based on some very strong procedures for both separating politics from the economy and also reconnecting them, but reconnecting them within very specific channels of transaction, of decision-making, of procedures, etc., would have hearings or you could have a, a right to be heard in various ways from the organized representatives from the business and from uh, from labor etc so it was a very much a, a formalized system which limited or used to say it distilled the sort of impact and influence private parties could have on state and politics so to say and it was a very very different system than the the corporatist one and then we get uh, the governance system which started to emerge from the 1970s um, onwards is basically say no, 
the market should rule, basically. And since we don't need all these kind of straitjackets of formal hearings and formal law and formal kind of structures, all this red tape, you want deregulation, you want privatization, you want et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's the kind of the, the, the Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan kind of approach to society, which has been ruling us until at least very recently. And the interesting thing is that they also say that this very distinction between hierarchy and spontaneity needs to go. So in many ways, you could put it in one sentence. I think also that's almost the last sentence of my um, uh, own contribution to the book, that whereas interwar corporatism basically wanted to get rid of the spontaneous dimension of society, they wanted hierarchy only, then the governance kind of approach says we do not need hierarchy at all, we only need spontaneity, we only need the market. So in that sense, they also become each other's mirror images, or you could say contemporary governance is like corporatism turned upside down. And that's basically the kind of, uh, I think, the, the thrust, because that means also that the factual effects of what they produce is very similar. And that's why we are having some quite severe problems in our Western societies today, I believe. Just as a quick follow-up to that, uh, the new... Uh public management. Do you differentiate between new public management, say Osborne and Gabler and their version of it in the States, versus the European or the UK version? Well, obviously there is, uh, so to say, local variations, that's for sure. I think the key premise of new public management is that private is per se always better than public. And if you cannot get rid of the public, then at least the public institution should work as much as if there were private uh, kind of institutions or economic actors on the market, so to say. And that, that fundamental premise is wrong uh, in the sense that what public institutions do have a far broader, if you wish, collective, structural, societal kind of perspective and reach, which means they should exactly not work as, as markets because that's what they want to do. This is essentially about marketization. You want internal competition on the, uh, in the health system, in the healthcare system, in the uh, social welfare system, etc., etc. Uh, you want to introduce competition and market kind of logics, but in areas where they do not belong. That doesn't mean that market logics cannot fo- uh, function perfectly well in other areas of society, for example, within the economy, but they have no place fundamentally inside state institutions. And I think many of the the problems we have on the ground as well with broken frameworks in everything from prisons to uh, healthcare to many other areas of society are very much linked up to this false premise that we have public institutions which will operate as if they were not public institutions. And I think, so yes, there is of course variations and someone also more sensitive to this, but the fundamental premise is the problem, I think. Well. Hey, I, uh, I appreciate so much you really elaborating on, on so much of this. It's, it's, it's really enlightening. What, what are you currently working on? I'm writing a book, uh, this time a, a single author, author monograph, which uh, is provisionally entitled The Transnational Constitution of Political Economies. And the point being is that we actually have national political economies. We have different uh, types of political economies out there. And that means how economics, uh, economy and politics interacts in, say, Germany or France is different from how it operates in England or in United States or in Japan, etc. So you clearly have what we call varieties of capitalism when we talk about political economy. But what I think uh, one fails to see is 
that many of these institutions, although that they have national kind of uh, idiosyncrasies, they tend to actually be, to be transnationally constructed and constituted. And that is not something new which came in the last few years, but something which has been around for a long, long period. If you take an example, the Weimar Republic, uh, which we talked about before, in the Weimar Constitution, we have the first modern constitution where social rights are written into the constitution. So there are like uh, rights for social security, for retirement, etc., etc. All sorts of social rights written into the um, constitution. And that's the, basically the economic constitution of the Weimar Republic was written into the formal constitutional document of uh, the Weimar states. That took place in 1919, but also in 1919 you had the foundation of the International Labour Organization in Geneva, and actually there was a lot of Germans involved in that process, and that meant that actually the people who wrote the economic constitutional part of the Weimar Constitution were the same who wrote the transnational constitution of the labour market in Geneva at the same time. So what we have is actually that this move towards establishing some kind of framework for political economies and also for welfare states and welfare provisions was very much a national and a transnational operation at the same time. It's not like we first had national provisions and then came the transnational provisions afterwards. You see something similar after 1945, where uh, the Marshall Plan and the British and American French occupation of West Germany and so on very much led to a construction of a new German model of political economy through this transnational kind of intervention. And of course, we see in the recent years, in, in Europe as well, uh, the intervention of uh, uh, the European Union in Greece and other countries, which is demanding a restructuring of their societies and political economies. And of course, globally, since 1945 or so, you had the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank doing something similar on a global scale, intervening in uh, national political economies. And that means actually very much those political economy models we have are actually transnationally constructed by experts sitting in various institutions rather than through national processes. At the same time, our political kind of uh, ideas and discourses says that we, the people in Denmark or in Germany or in the UK or elsewhere, have constructed welfare institutions and now globalizations are threatening those institutions. But actually these institutions was actually very much to a large extent constructed by those transnational actors. So there is this duality going on between the national and the transnational. And in many ways I'm writing kind of the the transnational history of the constitution of political economies. Yeah, interesting. You've talked about and written about intermediary institutions and this idea of social integration and disintegration. Will that play into this? That will definitely be a, a very essential part because why did we develop new social market economy models after 1945? There was a clear response to the sort of disintegration of the 1920s and 30s and the murder emergence of totalitarianism. And if you see many of the IMF interventions in the 70s, it came after the economic crisis and the kind of quasi-disintegration which happened at that time uh, with the oil crisis and so forth, and uh, especially the UK at the time when the IMF intervened in 1976 is a good example of this, because actually one says that the, the neoliberal revolution was done by Margaret Thatcher, but actually 
the UK was subject to an IMF program from 1976 to 79, the three years prior to Thatcher taking power, where basically the basic frameworks for this program were made. So when she took hold of power in 79, the framework was already there and it was made in Washington by the IMF. It was not made in the finance ministry in, in London or in the Conservative Party or anywhere else in the UK. And you see this all the way along, uh, sort of say. And there is a, a systematic overestimation of the role of national politics in these processes. And of course, that is something which is both concerning uh, because we would like democracy to rule but it is also somehow blurring our understanding of how this actually takes place. And I think if we want to address these kinds of issues, we need to understand better how does this sorts of norms and actions and policies actually come into being and how are they implemented. And you cannot do that without this kind of a transnational dimension. And it links also the final example, by the way. I mean, obviously the financial crisis uh, led to severe problems in many countries and the complete restructuring of the Greek economy of the Spanish economy, the Portuguese economy, the Irish economy, by the European Com uh, Commission and the IMF and the European Central Bank, the so-called Troika, was a direct response to the, the crisis the, which was emerged because of the financial breakdown in 2008. So there is this very close link between crisis, transnational intervention, and national politics. And it, it is this triangle that I try to look into in the three periods, interwar period, 1970s, and post-2008. That's great, and look look forward to that. Good point about the overwriting, oversimplification of the way we look at things more generally. But last question, and again, hey, thanks so much for, for spending so much time with us. Final question for you. Do you have any reading recommendations you would make to listeners uh, as students of law and political economy looking to complement and, and enhance their understanding of your book and or your books, I should say, and rel relevant issues more generally? Well, I, I think, of course, it, it depends wh where your starting point is as a reader, how much you know already, etc. And I think many would probably know Karl Polanyi and Hayek already because they're the, the two big famous guys out there, so to say. If you don't know them, they're the place to start, I think. But what I would do then in the next step is to go for the more intermediary positions, which I mentioned uh, previous in our talk. And that is kind of the auto-liberal school associated with people like Walter Eugen and Franz Böhm, which have been writing some very, very sophisticated stuff. And it's what we might call the social democratic school, associated with uh, scholars such as Hermann Heller, Hugo Sensheimer, Otto Kahn-Freund, and Franz Leopold Neumann. And if you take those two positions and you dig into those, then you will see there is very nuanced ways of understanding how the law political economy works. And it's not like an outright black and white question who's right here. All, all of them bring something to the table. And of course, we all have our personal sympathies, either for one or the other, or for more left-leaning or more right-leaning. But they are all very clever scholars who have something uh, interesting to say, I think. Well, nice. Um, thanks for sharing that. And uh, really appreciate uh, those recommendations. And, and again, uh, congratulations on compiling this volume of really interesting articles. It's, it's a real contribution to a significant and relevant field of study. The title of the book, again, The Law of Political Economy, Transformation in the Function of Law, Cambridge University Press, 
Kindle and hardcover. Well, uh, thanks again for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.